Good morning and welcome to PepsiCo's 2022 second quarter earnings question and answer session. Your lines have been placed on listen only until it's your turn to ask a question. In order to ask a question or make a comment, please press star followed by one on your touchstone phone at any time. Today's call is being recorded and will be archived at www.pepsico.com. It is now my pleasure to introduce Mr. Ravi Pamnani, Senior Vice President of Investor Relations. Mr. Pamnani, you may begin. Thank you, Operator. I hope everyone has had the chance this morning to review our press release and prepared remarks, both of which are available on our website. Before we begin, please take note of our cautionary statement. We may make forward-looking statements on today's call, including about our business plans, updated 2022 organic revenue guidance, and the potential impacts of both the COVID-19 pandemic and the deadly conflict in Ukraine on our business. Forward-looking statements inherently involve risks and uncertainties and only reflect our views as of today, July 12, 2022, and we are under no obligation to update. When discussing our results, we refer to non-GAAP measures, which exclude certain items from reported results. Please refer to our second quarter 2022 earnings release and second quarter 2022 Form 10-Q, available on PepsiCo.com, for definitions and reconciliations of non-GAAP measures and additional information regarding our results, including a discussion of factors that could cause actual results to materially differ from forward-looking statements. Joining me today are PepsiCo's Chairman and CEO, Ramon LaGuarta, and PepsiCo's Vice Chairman and CFO, Hugh Johnston. We ask that you please limit yourself to one question. And with that, I will turn it over to the operator for the first question. Thank you. Once again, in order to ask a question and make a comment, please press star followed by one on your touchtone telephone. We'll pause for a moment while I compile our Q&A roster. Our first question comes from Lauren Lieberman with Barclays. Your line is open. Great. Thanks. Good morning. Um, such strong numbers across the board, but I was I was curious if we could talk a little bit about the convenience and gas channel in the U.S. I know that you've noted, you know, on one hand, um, you know, consumers making more frequent trips um, to get gas allows for more opportunities to go in and, and buy a snack or a drink. But on the other hand, they're spending a boatload of money to fill up their tank or to the degree they're filling it up. Um, so the counter could be less extra money to spend when they go into the store. So I was just curious if you could talk about what it is that you're seeing currently. I know CNG has been an area of incremental investment for you in the last couple of months, particularly um, on the Frito side, and just an update on, I guess, um, yield from those investments um, and what you're seeing in terms of consumer purchasing behavior. Thanks. Yeah, good morning, Lauren. Uh, yeah, listen, um, these are important channels, you're saying, uh, and we've been investing in, in the U.S. and other other parts of the world in this impulse channel. The um, the trends are quite stable from what we've seen since Q4, and as the gasoline price went up, the um, the consumption on beverages and snacks in in that particular channel is is been pretty stable. A bit less volume, a bit more price, as we you know second second quarter versus first quarter, but. Overall um, sales um, has remained stable. A high single digit, a uh, bit of a difference between beverages and snacks. Snacks a bit higher than beverages, but uh, stable. And and that has continued into the last uh, few weeks. So we don't see any meaningful consumer behavioral change um, as, as gas prices go up. Um, obviously, we're watching this channel uh, very carefully as an indicator of potential consumer 
um, behavioral change, but so far um, high incidence in, in our categories. Uh, yeah. Thank you. One moment for our next question. Our next question comes from Darren Moschini with Morgan Stanley. Your line is open. Hey, good morning, guys. Morning, there. So I just want to talk a bit about pricing relative to costs. Obviously, another quarter of very exceptionally strong pricing in Q2. Um, Ramon, are you hearing any pushback from the retailer trade that, that's different than normal? It's been a topic of discussion more in CPG in general. So um, just curious uh, for your views on, on retailer pushback and ability to continue to take pricing going forward. Um, including what that might mean for the fall. And then, Hugh, can you just give us an update on the cost outlook for 2022? And given hedging, how much hedging do you have in place? Does that sort of create a hangover for 23? I know you won't guide for 23, but just how you think about the pricing versus cost gap for 23 based on where we stand today might be helpful, at least conceptually. Thanks. Yeah, hi there. Uh, yeah, obviously, <clears throat> You know, our, our past partners and, and ourselves were looking at consumers very carefully um, and, and the evolution of their decision when it comes to the overall basket or our particular categories. Um, so, you know, normally we have pretty positive conversations with our partners and, and we're, we're looking at um, you know, how do we continue to keep our consumers in our categories as we obviously have to uh, pass some of these costs to the consumer? How do we do it in a way that doesn't impact volume and, and it continues to generate growth for them and growth for us? And th those are the type of conversations we're having. Um, obviously, we're all um, concerned in a way about the uh, high inflation and how that's going to impact, especially as we look at the full consumer universe, the lower part of the uh, income pyramid, that's where we're all looking more, uh, you know, carefully and, and we're making decisions on entry point in the categories and, and how do we continue to have that, that particular consumer engage in our, in our categories. The, um, you know, the conversations are, you know, always, um, you know, there, there's always tensions in those conversations. There will continue to be tensions, but in general, they're very positive conversations, the ones we have, because we play a role, and, and that's our strategic intent, to be growth drivers for our partners, and we go to these conversations very transparently and very positively to generate growth and, and additional margin for our customers. So that that's the way the situation is, and, and we'll continue um, you know, balance of the year and into as we start thinking about the plans for next year. Right, and, and hi, Dara. Uh, in terms of cost, as you know, our, our first focus whenever we're faced with inflation is to try to drive incremental productivity on our internal costs. Uh, and I think we've been doing a pretty good job of that. I mean, we've seen this year some of the strongest productivity we've seen in a number of years. Uh, that puts us in a, in a relatively better position when we're faced with commodity inflation because we're not – necessarily forced to price it all through. We, we can take a, a more uh, consumer-centric approach to, to dealing with uh, the inflation and, and the subsequent pricing. Uh, balance of the year inflation is, is higher than, uh, than it is for the first half of the year. 
Uh, I think we've mentioned in the past we're in, we're in the teens in terms of commodity inflation. That will continue, but a little bit higher in the back half. Uh, but we do expect stronger productivity in, in the back half as well. So uh, I think from a, an overall cost outlook, uh, it, we're, our, our guidance uh, certainly captures all of that, and, and I think it puts us in a, in a position where we've got, uh, got high confidence in delivering the year. Thank you. One moment for our next question. Our next question comes from Andrew Texera with J.P. Morgan. Your line is open. Hi, good morning. Um, so the market share gains you alluded to uh, in, uh, in PB&A and uh, not PB&A, sorry, in snacks, um, and, and in general we've been pretty positive, and I know has been a, a narrative that there's some service level issues in, in both cases, and especially if, um, in North America. I'm wondering if you can comment on that. And then separately on Latin, and I think uh, you mentioned Ramon and Hugh in terms of like balancing what you just said, inflation getting worse. Um, and of course, Latin America has been extremely resilient uh, for a region that, you know, has obviously a lot of pressures on, on, on gas, gas prices as well. So I wonder if you can comment on where the strength is coming from. Um, if you're getting more space in the in the big box, is this uh, Oxo, Bodega Orera, or Atacadão, or anything like that that gives you comfort that you continue to gain share from a very organic basis and despite the pricing? And uh, and if you can comment again on the, um, on the service levels in the U.S. Thank you. Great. So, okay, thank you, Andrea. Hi. Um, this is an I'll talk about share in a minute, but if you think about our role and you're referring to snacks uh, in your questions mostly, but, you know, you can apply this to beverages, our number one responsibility as a as a large player in, in both snacks and beverages is to make sure the category grows and continues to grow in any circumstance, either, you know, economic, positive economic or negative economic, high inflation, low inflation. That is our main responsibility because that's the health the health of the business, really. So, you know, everything we're doing in our commercial plans in the U.S., outside of the U.S., is make sure that we have strong brand programs, channel programs, execution programs, innovation programs that continue to make our category preferred over other categories. And we're seeing that. And that's the main reason why, you know, when you see the growth that we're delivering in and the low elasticities we're having in many countries around the world, I, that is the main reason. We're continuing to have very strong commercial programs that continue to attract consumer star categories because of innovation, because of execution, and, 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 and great brand programs. Now, having said that, on the share front, we're, we're also seeing um, gains across many countries around the world. That has been a consequence of the investments we've been making in the brands for, for now uh, you know, several years. Uh, we've strengthened our go-to-market uh, capabilities, our digital capabilities. Our brands are looking more modern and more engaging for consumers. Our innovation is, is great. So I think those are the uh, combinations. I, it, when you question on Latin America, we're seeing, um, uh, and, and I think it, it relates to the amount of transfers and money transfers that are coming from the U.S. into Latin America. We're seeing that number really uh, high. Uh, it's a consequence of the high employment in the U.S. and the higher salaries. We're seeing that money being transferred to, um, you know, a lot of the economies in LATAM, and that's helping 
that's helping a lot of disposable income in those countries. And we're seeing, to our surprise, really, from the beginning of the year, very low elasticities, actually positive elasticities, even though, obviously, we're passing price to the, uh, to the consumer in those markets in, in intelligent ways and, and, and in ways that consumers, um, you know, will feel less pressure on. But, but I, I think disposable income uh, in LATAM is, is above uh, what it was in the past, a consequence of developed economies doing very well and money going into LATAM, um, and the consumers feeling good in Latin America. Also, you know, post-COVID, we're seeing behaviors of, uh, you know, social expansion, if you want, so consumers coming out of the houses, consumers having more fun externally in LATAM and in many parts of the world. That tends to drive higher consumption of categories because people get together and have fun, and, and we are part of fun experiences normally. So that's how we're seeing, um, you know, the, the trends in our categories. Yeah. Thank you. One moment for our next question. Our next question comes from Brian, Brian Splang with Bank of America. You're All right. Uh, thanks, operator. Good morning, everyone. Um, maybe, Hugh, you know, if you could just talk a little bit about um, maybe headwinds, tailwinds of the back, back half of the year. And I guess it's in the context of, you know, you raised organic sales guidance this morning but kept uh, the, the EPS uh, basically the same. So um, is that a function of concerns about cost? Um, I know you, you mentioned some of that in, Dar to, in response to Dara's question. Foreign exchange, just volatility in the world, just just kind of how you think about the how maybe how some of the risks or, or, or headwinds tailwinds might have evolved as we look into the second half. Yeah, it, Brian. Obviously, the the first uh, thing that we're thinking about these days is just the level of volatility in the world, um, and, and we do what we can to insulate ourselves against that that volatility. We you know we have zero floating uh, rate debt, so we we've insulated ourselves against that. We, we forward bond commodities. We, we insulate ourselves against that. Um, we, we, we try to do as much as we can to, to create a, uh, a predictable work environment so that we, we have, we can manage our labor costs well. Uh, but there's obviously macros that are out there that, you know, are, are more volatile than they were a few years ago. So, uh, as we sort of look at things, clearly, as I mentioned before, uh, commodities are a bit higher in the back half than, than they are in the first half. That, that's incorporated into all of this. Um, you know, we, we're still watching elasticities closely, as Ramon just mentioned. Uh, elasticities are, are good right now. We don't we don't plan for them to be as strong in the back half, uh, and and we'll see what happens with that. Uh, it, it's certainly hard to be, hard to gauge because inflation is having so much impact on the consumer in so many ways. But as we look at all of it and, and we're making choices around, okay, as you know, we, we have, we like to give you numbers that are highly deliverable. Uh, the choice that we made was based on, on the things I just mentioned, uh, that we would uh, raise the revenue guidance because we felt highly confident in that. And for EPS guidance, we, we made a choice to hold right now based on some of the volatility and, and some of the variables that, that I had mentioned. Thank you. One moment for our next question. Our next question comes from Bonnie Herzog with Goldman Sachs. Your line is open. All right. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Um, just a quick follow-up on, Hugh, just what you were discussing. Could you talk about, you know, if you are also planning to 
sort of reinvest or step up reinvestments into your business despite, you know, the cost inflation that you just called out in the second half. And I'm thinking about in the context of your, your very strong top line. And then I did want to ask about, you know, your revenue growth management in this environment and, you know, how strong you think your capabilities are to ensure you have the right packages in both your beverage and salty snack business to ensure, you know, you have affordable offerings, especially as we, you know, can, could see increasing pressures on the consumer. And then could you touch on your beverage business and how your, you know, ownership of your bottling operations might actually be a competitive advantage, you know, or not as it relates to, to this? Thank you. Okay, thanks, Bonnie. I think that was three questions, but we'll take a shot at it. Three for one. Number one, uh, in terms of investment in the uh, in the back half, you know, we we, we have some investment uh, in the back half. It was planned for. Um, you know, the way that that we're collectively uh, trying to run the company is to build sustainable results over a long period of time. And that that means you're constantly balancing delivering uh, the near term while uh, making sure that you're building capability for next year and the year after that and the year after that. Uh, so I, I think we have the right balance on that right now, and and we'll we'll see as the results come in whether we we need to make adjustments to that. But uh, we we think we have the right balance to deliver the results this year and also make the investments to deliver the results for for next year. Um, on your second question uh, regarding uh, consumer, value oh, consumer value, yeah, yeah. Uh, listen, I, I think we actually are best in the industry to do that for a couple of reasons. One, our, our portfolio is so broad, uh, you know, anywhere from premium products like Frappuccino to value products like Santitas, and because our, our supply chain, our distribution network, enables us to shape the inventory in store by store. So for stores that, that need more value products, we can weight the inventory in that store towards that. For stores that premium products are going to turn better, we obviously have the ability to, to adjust inventory. And the digital investments that we've been making in, in our route system actually make us even more and more capable of doing that. So I think compared to where we were two or three years ago, we're even sharper in terms of being able to deliver exactly the right inventory in store. Uh, as for ownership of, of the beverage business, uh, as as I've talked about many times in the past, I, I think it is a significant competitive advantage for us. It's obviously more capital intensive, but I think it enables us to do things that it's difficult for our competitors to do. So we, we think we're 100% on the right strategy by owning it, and I think this environment is going to prove that more than more than it ever has before. So hopefully that answered uh, 1A, B, and C in terms of your questions. Yeah, especially, Bonnie, I think the uh, – on the second question, and um, the truth is that we've been investing on that revenue management now for four or five years, and, uh, and it has been in, in the developed markets, but also in the developing markets, to try to add to the um, to the old capabilities we had, which were more related to the ability to um, you know, change product size or understand better the channels, to much more individual almost understanding of the consumer and, and what we can do to keep that consumer in our in our brand and you know different different levels of, of pricing and depending on obviously what that consumer prefers. That link to our you know precision execution as he referred to both in developed markets but also in developing markets as well, 
where we reach normally cap very capillar distribution. That that gives us, I think, a unique advantage end to end from consumer insights to point of sale execution. That is quite, uh, you know, it's hard to match in the industry, and we're seeing that. We're seeing that in, um, you know, across the world. So it's good investments that we're getting the return, and we're going to need more of it, obviously, as as inflation keeps going up, and we're going to have to be super agile and and, and very. Uh, very precise on, on, on the choices we make uh, with the consumer. Thank you. One moment for our next question. Our next question comes from Nick Modi with RBC. Your line is open. Yeah, thank you. Good morning, everyone. Um, Ramon, I was wondering, if, you know, now with the decision on, on the bank distribution rights uh, out, um, can you just update us on the energy drink strategy here? and? And what kind of financial implications should we expect just as we think about, um, I guess, questions for you, Hugh, in terms of the beverage business, you know, over the course of the year now that um, I'm, I'm not sure if the distribution stops right away or if you still have some time left uh, on, on the contract if it, if it expires at the end of 2022. Yeah. Yeah, Nick, so listen, uh, obviously our, our commitment to the, um, to the energy category remains, <clears throat> you know, um, as – solid as it was earlier. We continue to see this category as one that is growing and evolving and where we can play uh, in multiple ways uh, to capture sub-segments that are, that are starting to develop. Um, so the, 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 uh, the multi-prone approach that I've referred to uh, in the past continues to be um, you know, valid. So we're going to lead with uh, Rockstar, and Rockstar was seeing several platforms in Rockstar that are starting to uh, gain uh, hold, I would say, in non-sugar and some of the more functional beverages. So that's a big pillar. Second big pillar for us is our coffee business. Obviously, we're, we're, we're having double shot, triple shot, and some additional innovation with Starbucks that it's, it's, uh, it's clearly consumer preferred and continues to do very well. The third pillar is, um, you know, around our uh, kind of flavor forward energy with Mountain Dew. And uh, we're seeing <clears throat> sports and energy uh, segment growing more and more in this category. And we have some uh, big ideas on how some of our large brands can play in sports and energy um, in the past, in the future, uh, shortly in the future. The, um, the distribution part has always been a, in an additional opportunity. We have, uh, as we were talking earlier, a very strong DSD system, and we can put brands in our business and, 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 and you know, provide unique distribution capillarity and execution. That's what we were intending with Bank. That relationship didn't start well from the beginning. Clearly, it was it was better to stop it. Uh, because it had no uh, long-term uh, value for both of us. Now, there, the financial implications are minor. It was never central to the uh, energy strategy. And we continue to be open to other opportunities on distributing brands. Uh, that has always been, a, you know, a, a complementary part of the strategy. The big part of the strategy is, as I was saying, taking our brands and taking our, our innovation into new spaces and, and continue to disrupt this category, which is continuing to grow. It, the consumers like it. Consumers are looking for new benefits in that category. They're willing to pay reasonable prices, and, and um, that's not only the U.S., but it's internationally, and, and we see it as a big opportunity for PepsiCo uh, today and, and, and into the future as well. Right, and Nick, as, as Ramon mentioned, financial impact, not material. Thank you. One moment for our next question. 
Our next question comes from Kevin Grundy with Jefferies. Great. Thanks. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, Ramon, I wanted to pivot to your business venture with Boston Beer uh, and Hard Mountain Dew. Maybe just provide an update there, how that relationship has progressed since the partnership was announced, your early learnings to date. And, and importantly, you know, as you spend more time studying the alcohol space, maybe you can offer some updated thoughts on your broader ambitions to play a bigger role there, not, not only new product innovation, but, but also the potential to distribute non-PepsiCo uh, products uh, through, your, through your distribution. Thank you. Yeah, um, yeah nothing, nothing has changed from the previous quarter when we talked about this topic as well. We've learned more, and we are probably more convinced of the, um, the potential of, uh, as you were referring to, the Boston Beer Partnership. I think we, we have um, you know great product that they have developed. Um, we've licensed the brand to Boston Beer, and we're providing uh, distribution in some states, um, execution, it's, it's very good. Uh, the product is turning very well. Uh, high share in those in those um, in those states. So it makes us feel positive about the potential of Har Montenew and the relationship with Boston Beer. They are great partners and they have strong R and D capabilities and, and branding capabilities as they as they own the Har Montenew brand. Now going forward. The, uh, obviously, you know, we, we get encouraged by this, and we're working on multiple uh, new innovations that will, you know, will come to the market uh, shortly. Um, uh, and, and, you know, from, from the distribution point of view, the same as I said with, um, with um, energy, we, we, we want to leverage our, our assets for distribution. We think in alcohol we can bring uh, new brands to the market. We don't want to be... A, a distributing a lot of brands. That's not our that's not our intention to have many many brands and a very complex set of brands in our distribution. We'd rather focus on a few large uh, consumer opportunities and put them through a uh, what is a very powerful DSD system. So that is the way we're thinking about our alcohol distribution. Not a lot of brands, not distributing beer or anything like that, but just a few large consumer um, ideas that we can bring to. Um, to the market through our system, um, which we think is an advantage execution machine. And that's, that's what we're proving with Harmon to do. <clears throat> Thank you. One moment for our next question. Our next question comes from Vivian Azar with Cowing. Your line is open. Hi. Good morning. Um, I was hoping to, to dive into consumer preferences, please. Uh, you guys have been consistent in calling out your aspiration to drive portfolio mix shift over the long term to reduce um, fat, reduce sodium, lower sugar propositions. But as I think back over the last two and a half years, it seems like at the start of the pandemic, consumers were understandably really leaning into indulgence. So I'm curious whether you've seen any mean reversion in consumer preferences around health and wellness propositions within your portfolio. Thank you. Yeah, Vivian, yeah, I'll give you a few data um, so that that that, um, that helps you um, with the diagnostic. The, the um, in, in beverages, um, non-sugar is growing three times the speed of full sugar. So that gives you a sense of how consumers are, are and that's in the U.S., are, are choosing with their, with their choices. If you go to more developed markets uh, around the world, like Western Europe, 
the categories are pivoting very quickly to non-sugar. In the UK, for example, the non-sugar segment in beverages is already uh, almost uh, above 80% of the market. So clearly, in beverages, non-sugar is king. You see some of our innovations in the last couple of years with, for example, uh, Gatorade Zero. That was a, it's a huge innovation. Uh, I think it's a billion and a half uh, in only three years. And, um, you know, expansive to the category and, and recruiting new consumers into the brand. So non-sugar, I think, is an unstoppable uh, trend in the beverage category, something we're leaning in with our R&D, something we're leaning in with our commercial strategies with the customers. <clears throat> Every brand it has a non-sugar um, leg that is going to be the focus leg for the brand in the in the foreseeable future. So that that is in, in beverages. Obviously, you see other trends like functionality. You know, consumers looking for additional functionality and willing to pay for that. So, but but you know, your your question was more about health. So uh, sugar clearly um, being a, you know a, a dimension. Now in snacks, uh, I think consumers are also voting with their with their money. So permissible snacks, what we call permissible snacks, uh, which are the kind of baked or popped or kind of not fried snacks, they're growing much faster than fried snacks, so that we see that as well in that category. We're seeing um, kind of more nutritious substrates um, um, growing faster than some of the uh, more cereal-based uh, um, uh, substrates. Uh, but one trend we're seeing across is portion control. So portion control is a huge consumer idea, how we're eliminating some of the breaks, if you want, in consumers' mind to have higher frequency in our categories is portion control. We're seeing in snacks a huge growth on small format, uh, multi-packs, where not only is, is, is portion control but variety. And we're seeing that also in beverages where full sugar products are going to uh, smaller portions, right, like mini cans or some other formats that give the consumer you know, the, the little pleasure for without the uh, a lot of calories. So I, I would I would continue to uh, bet long term on health being one of the vectors that consumers are choosing. Uh, there's also indulgent. Obviously, there's also functionality. There's also you know social moments. There's there's a lot of vectors in our categories, and that's the beauty of our categories. They attract a lot of consumers because of the multiple locations. But but I would I would continue to bet on health being one of the uh, uh, vectors of choice for the consumer, and that's part of our innovation strategy and how we're trying to move the the categories long term. And it's part of the success. If you think about the sodium reduction, the uh, the fat transformation, the sugar reduction in our products, uh, you know, a lot of the R&D investments we've been putting in the company in the last many years are starting to pay back. In in you know, we're giving the consumer the option to make choices with no trade. Uh, trade-offs in taste or, or any of the other key category choices here. Thank you. One moment for our next question. Our next question comes from Stephen Powers with Deutsche Bank. Hey, good morning. Thank you. Um, maybe going back to the, the higher top line that you're now seeing for the year, could you maybe expand a bit more on that and, and talk about the incremental changes that have taken shape um, in your own expectations since last quarter? I guess, you know, would you frame the, the two points of organic growth upside more as volume or price mix driven versus prior expectations? And, and maybe would you call it any 
particular segments is, is more or less responsible, that'd be helpful. And I know I'm only I don't allow one question, but Hugh, if I could, just going back to Brian's question on the second half cost, I was wasn't fully clear on the answer whether the the maintained EPS in light of the better top line was was really more conservatism in in the face of volatility or if there were known pockets of higher costs you're now facing in, and if the latter if you could just be a little bit more specific there. Thank you. Yeah, I'll, why don't I handle that that piece first, and maybe Ramon and I can tag team your first question. Uh, the the latter piece, as you know, Steve, we're never conservative. We we try to be accurate here. That said, we also try not to miss numbers. So uh, I I think there is nothing new that that uh, we weren't aware of, frankly, a couple of months ago. So I, I don't think there's any any incremental information that would cause us to be concerned about the back half. Uh, regarding your question around why is the revenue number higher, I think that the primary reason is given given the unknowns around consumer elasticity. Uh, as we came out of the first quarter, we were we were quite pleased with where elasticity sat, uh, but we still had nine months left in the year, so we we adopted a certain posture about the balance of the year. Uh, the second quarter is also held up from an elasticity perspective better than we thought, and we're we're sort of flowing that upside through. That said, the balance of the year we still have six months to go. Uh, there's still plenty of unknowns in terms of what's going to happen with consumer behavior. We think we're well positioned both from a customer perspective as well as from a consumer perspective. But uh, we still have six months to go, and consumers are still sort of absorbing the impact on inflation on their overall spending. So I, I think I wouldn't characterize it as conservatism. I think we, we go through a lot of scenario planning, and the sum of those scenarios led us to choose uh, higher on revenue but not yet higher on EPS. Thank you. One moment for our next question. Our next question comes from Camille Garjawala with Credit Suisse. Your line is open. Hi, guys. Good morning. Um, you've made a business decision, I guess, some years ago to uh, own and retain the bottlers um, that you purchased, I guess, maybe 10-ish years ago. Uh, if we are indeed in a you know, very different inflationary environment, um, does that change how you think about uh, how asset light or asset heavy you prefer the business to be? Yeah, Camille. Uh, hi, this is Ramon. Now, uh, listen, um, inflation will come and go, um, and uh, the, the, the reason why we're keeping the bottling business integrated with the brand business is much more longer term than, you know, the, um, I don't know, the economic cycle that will leave for the next couple of years. It's a huge strategic decision that um, is more based on if you think about the consumer uh, evolution and the uh, shopper evolution and the way channels will evolve in the future, I think having an integrated brand to consumer uh, value chain will give us flexibility and faster decision making that we, we believe creates a lot of value for the company, right? In the short term, um, yeah, we, we will have inflation in S&D and we'll have inflation in, in some of the manufacturing. But if you, if you have a bottling system, that inflation happens anyhow. So your, your system still has that inflation. It's not like, you know, we're, nobody's isolated from inflationary pressures. I mean, your system, consumer to uh, 
you know, kind of manufacturing to consumers still has that inflation. So we think, uh, again, this is a very strategic decision we've made, thinking about the long term, where consumer is going, where the shopper is going, where the retailers are going, where, where we're going to fulfill demand in the future and where demand will be in the future. Much more complex, much more long tail. You know, there's a lot of things that um, we feel that we're going to be best positioned uh, in the future, and we're talking about five, ten years from now, uh, to fulfill that demand in a much more integrated way from the brand to the consumer with all the value chain and the one decision-making point. Again, you know, um, yeah, the economic cycles will, will, will defer. Now, now we'll have inflation. Maybe three years from now we'll have deflation. And, we'll, you know, so we we're not thinking that short-term for what is a, a, a huge uh, a business model decision. Thank you. One moment for our next question. Our next question comes from Brett Cooper with Consumer Edge. Your line is open. Good morning. Uh, from the data that we can see, your top line is benefiting by about 100 basis points from reductions in promotional depth and breadth, uh, and that's not just short-term. We've seen that over the last several years. And we can obviously only see part of your business, so it's hoping that you can speak to the benefits from promotional optimization across your business, what's enabling that realization, and then given the enormous size of promotional spend in your business, what the potential is uh, for promotional optimization over the medium term. Thanks. Yeah, it's a good, great question. And, and uh, if you think about the way we're looking at all the costs in the company, the cost to fulfill demand, the cost to uh, generate demand, we're looking at higher return on investment across all the costs that we have in the business. Obviously, the one you're referring to, along with uh, our marketing investments, are the two big demand uh, creation uh, budget. We're looking at optimizing those uh, investments, uh, both on the consumer side and on the uh, consumer customer side. And um, that has been a journey. Um, it has been done um, through uh, much more intelligence, through much more data, through much better uh, precision uh, decisions in that in that space, along with our customers. And um, and, and that is a journey that I, I would see as a uh, continuous journey to optimize all the budgets that we have in the company to maximize returns. So trade budget, as you say, is a large budget. Uh, we're going to continue to optimize it and maybe move those resources to some other areas where we can get better demand generation, right? And we'll do that in, 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 uh, in partnership with our customers and, and to, the, uh, to the spirit of creating growth for the category as we've had in the past, yeah. Thank you. One moment for our next question. Our next question comes from Chris Carey with Wells Fargo. Hi, good morning. So just a couple questions on some of these more um, topical markets. I guess just in, in Europe, um, you know, if anywhere this is where elasticity seems to be playing out, um, are we finally seeing the consumer come undone a bit here? As pricing has built, are there other factors in play beginning to impact volumes, whether supply chain, product availability, basically anything else besides pure consumer elasticity? And then just in, in China, despite lockdown, still, you know, another strong number. Can you maybe just give us a sense of what's going on on the ground in China to continue to deliver this level of growth? Thank you. Yeah. Good. Um, listen, uh, Europe obviously has is, is been impacted by uh, more than other parts of the world by, uh, I would say, the war. So our business has been impacted 
both in Ukraine and Russia, uh, Ukraine because obviously we had to stop a lot of our uh, manufacturing commercial activities as reflected in our in our performance in Europe and, and also in Russia given the commitments we made to stop our beverage, some of our beverage uh, large brands and also stop advertising and promotion of our uh, more essential food brands. So clearly that's part of the, uh, the reason why the European business has been impacted. Um, with with regards to um, to China, um, you know clearly the lockdowns are impacting the operation of the business. So uh, our team has been uh, incredibly agile to uh, to make the right pivots in in how we are continuing to produce the you know our our you know our snacks or our beverages, um, and uh, we've been able to. You know, more or less, manage that. And what is an incredibly challenged uh, situation to get raw materials and to get con- you know products out to consumers. We're, we're doing that probably better than other companies, and that's why we're getting shared dramatically. That's the reason why our business is growing very fast. Now, uh, if you think about the beverage business, there has been an impact to the consumption of the beverage business in away from home. So as consumers have obviously stayed more at home. There has been an impact in the last few months in that particular channel, uh, not so much in the, uh, in the foods business. We're seeing both our Quaker business and our snack business continue to grow very fast, uh, a bit less so on the beverage side of the business, basically because of the away-from-home impact. Uh, in-home consumption of beverages continues to be quite strong. Thank you. One moment for our next question. Our last question comes from Peter Grom with UBS. Your line is open. Hey, good morning, everyone. I hope, I hope you're doing well. So I, I was hoping to follow up on Nick's question around the energy portfolio. So, Ramon, you mentioned the willingness to leverage your distribution assets, but I would be curious if there are any major takeaways from the relationship with Ben that kind of informed your view on how you think about these agreements moving forward. And then just, you know, any thoughts around, you know, timing, I guess. Is it, is it a near-term focus to kind of find a new brand to fill that void, or is this something you think about opportunistically over time? Yeah, listen, Peter, I think, as I said, um, the distribution part of the energy strategy is very marginal in one way or another. You know, it's, it's not the core part of the strategy. You continue to lean into our brands. We have very strong brands in our portfolio that I think, uh, as we see the category evolving, we're going to be able to play in those new spaces and capture market share, you know, looking forward and where the consumer is going. So, again, I'll repeat, a Rockstar and some parts of Rockstar what we're seeing you know, a lot of consumer pool, especially non-sugar and some of the more functional Starbucks coffee forward, uh, flavor forward with Mountain Dew. And as I said, we uh, we see sports and energy as a big space where we can capture, uh, you know, with some of our large brands in that space and innovation will be coming into the market soon. Those are the main, uh, if you think about our strategy and we might evolve that strategy, you know, with new spaces and, and, and how our brands can go there. That's our core of the strategy. You know, then leveraging our assets for distribution is marginal. Um, you know, to your question on bank, you know, you need to have good long-term partnership for, uh, you know, for the relationship to work. That didn't exist, so we're, we're, we're turning the page. Yeah. Ladies okay, and gentlemen, 
next question, right? So uh, thank you, everyone, uh, for joining us today. And I know it's summer, and everybody has you know, a, lot of, a lot of things to do. And, and then, obviously, for the confidence that you're all placing uh, with your investment in PepsiCo, we hope, we hope that you guys are safe and healthy and, and enjoy the summer. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, so this concludes today's presentation. You may now disconnect and have a wonderful day.